of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 205. Jason Lingren is with me, and we have some special guests here today. It's a hell of a thing going on in the world right now. It appears that common sense has been replaced by childlike fear, and we're watching world economies crash all based on fear. And that's the totality of what this is based on. Welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. So, hell of a kind of time we've come to here. Uh, We've seen the tee up for years, but it looks like the first major overreach that is on the just the fringes of ridiculous is finally underway here. Yeah, as we are recording this, I believe the country as a whole is now under a state of emergency. All based on much ado about no thing. Um, Anyhow, I'm going to introduce our guests here in a minute. Um, They are Don Lester and David Parker, uh, some months ago, they contacted me via email, said they had a book that they'd written, and would I like a copy? And I said, please. The book they sent me is titled as follows, What Really Makes You Ill and Why Everything You Thought You Knew About Disease is Wrong. When I got the book, I was stunned. This book is no joke. It is huge. It is well-researched, and there's almost no topic Uh, regarding modern health concerns that can't be looked. I'm talking even aspirin, or I mean, I could randomly rattle off anything someone might have a concern about, you could look up, uh, and it is well-documented. There are plenty of web addresses, sources, well-cited to show. And for those who caught episode 203 and the two episodes that followed 203, you will begin to understand That what you have been told in school, what you have been told by mainstream news is provably nonsense. And we will cite as much as we can during the course of this. Anything we need to get in here, Jason, before we jump in? No, let's maximize our time with these wonderful folks. All right. Welcome, David Parker and Don Lester. Hello. Hello. And uh, again, uh, lovely to be with you. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to this. Um, So yeah, let's, let's go with it as soon as you're ready. Let's try to do our job as best we can before we jump into all the things and the just plethora of information that is well cited and referenced in the book. There's a world panic going on, but the truth is, from my point of view, that it's much ado about nothing. Uh, What's the point of view from your side of the pond? Okay, well, certainly from our point of view, as uh, for those that don't know, the book, we've spent many years, well, over 10 years researching this. Uh, we'd released a, a small book um, some time ago uh, just to dip our toes in the water, and uh, which was well received. But um, it was only a small book just to release some of this information, false information that we realised was being put out by uh, the mainstream media and the medical establishment as a whole worldwide. So uh, we realised we needed to do more and look further and uh, research it very carefully. Hence, <laughs> it may sound like an awful long time, but uh, 10 years of research went into it. But what we wanted to do, and I'll, I'll sort of sort of set the theme here, is to look what evidence there was, if any, that supported the claims of the medical establishment as to what actually caused illness. Uh, and most of it, as your listeners will probably realise, is really based on what they call the germ theory, which is either bacteria or viruses are the cause of the majority of diseases, which are numerous. And they seem to be thinking up new names for diseases almost weekly, as I'm sure people understand what I'm saying there. 
Uh, so what we wanted to look at is, is take the view of it wasn't for us to prove them wrong. It was to try and see if their claims actually had true scientific evidence. And we sort of uh, rather liked uh, the philosopher Bertrand Russell's uh, sort of comments, and I paraphrase him here, where he once said, you know, to accept that uh, they're right and we have to prove them wrong is the same as him saying, well, I'm going to propose that there's a chocolate coffee pot orbiting Mars and you've got to believe what I say unless you can prove me wrong. So we turned that on its head and said, quite rightly, that the medical establishment are the ones that have put this proposal forward, that this germ or that germ or this virus or whatever causes a disease. So where's your evidence, uh, Mr. Establishment? And so that's what we set out to do, try and find the evidence to actually support what they said. And um, <laughs> it doesn't exist. And that was as big a shock to us as... Uh, I guess anyone, we, you know, we were brought up all our lives to believe that the medical establishment knew what they were doing, that it was all science based and uh, everything was provable. So it was a big shock to us um, to realise that that was not the case. And the more we dug, the deeper the rabbit hole became. And uh, so, so that's the, in essence, what we set out to do is to see whether there was any evidence to support the medical establishment's claims. And um, when people look through our book, we sort of tested our theory uh, many times. And that's why there's so many chapters in the book and why it's as, as big as it is, nearly 800 pages. Uh, so whenever we came across something, whether it was a human disease or even an animal disease, whether it was myxomatosis in rabbits or something like that, we used the same criterion to test it. Well, What's the evidence for this claim? Can it actually work that way? And again, even with that, and we do, I think, mention myxomatosis in the book, there's other causes. The claims of the medical and veterinary establishment as to what causes that particular disease in rabbits is unfounded. Uh, but there was plenty of evidence to show alternatives that would have caused it. And we found the same with people may remember, certainly in England, it was a big thing with BSE or some people knew it as mad cow disease, <laughs> which seemed to be more prevalent in the UK than anywhere else in the world, which again set us thinking, well, what's what's this about? So we examined that too. And we were able to find that, again, the official story being put out by the medical establishment and veterinary establishment, and indeed the government of the UK, was unfounded in any scientific way. And that the real cause of it was more to do with um, a particular method that farmers have to do by law in this country, in the UK, is to dip their animals in um, and sheep or cattle in a, a mix of organophosphates, which is supposed to kill off, uh, I think it was warble fly in this particular case. But as we were able to find out, um, it was these organophosphates, which are highly toxic, toxic, but in the concentrations that the UK government insisted on that was what was it attacks the central nervous system of the animals and hence the mad cow um, designation that they got uh, and it's it kills them uh, and it can the poisoned meat can be transferred to humans there were some incidences of it being passed on but of course the government wouldn't admit that it was a toxic uh, thing 
they uh, much wanted to refer to it as obviously as usual caused by a virus or a bacteria of some sort. So the criteria we've used is, is the same for diseases in animals as it is in humans. And we found exactly the same things, that the claims made by the medical establishment and governments are unsupported by science. And there are much more reasonable and sometimes very obvious reasons for the illnesses in both humans and animals. So let's uh, let's try to hand it back and forth so we can try to get through as many of the bullet points that we've laid out for this episode. But before we jump in, I'm going to hand it over to Jason when we do. Um, I'm going to ask a point blank question, which I asked the last medical doctor we had on in episode 203. Is there a shred of evidence in this world that supports or shows that viruses cause disease in human beings? The short answer is no. <laughs> there is no evidence. <clears throat> and we've we've got doctors. I don't know if some of your listeners may have heard of uh, Dr. Stefan Lanker, a German virologist who, uh, um, I think it's roughly three years ago, he, he's on the record, state, he has stated publicly, bearing in mind this is a virologist, who actually stated publicly that neither he or his team have ever found any virus to be the cause of any disease. Now, that's one hell of a statement, and uh, I think that has great repercussions with some of the stuff we're seeing in the world today. Well, the problem is, is that most people will not act like adults, as we know. The news is proving what I just said is true. They're going to regurgitate what they've been told their entire life, and they're not going to take their God-given ability as the highest life form in this world to go out and use their mind to actually test, to challenge whether what we just said was true. Um, I've tested it. I've challenged it. We just had an MD on who said the same thing. We've had another gentleman on who's been chained all over the world in Ayurvedic medicine and everything else who said the same thing. Uh, this virus thing is nonsense, and it's provable nonsense for people who want to go out and uh, take a look at what evidence there is to support any of it. But Jason, uh, time to get you in here. Why don't we see if we can make the most of everything we've outlined Absolutely. And I know where their evidence is, by the way. It's in the pocket of their little white lab coats. Yeah, yeah you think? My, money money kind of runs the game at this point, and science and everything else takes a back seat. But David, would you say that you already went through the first bullet point, that the medical system is not based in science, or is there more you'd like to contribute to that first? I think, I think we're, because we've got a lot to get through, so we won't sort of labor any of the points too much. So I think we could leave it at that. I would like to just state, because there was, uh, for anyone who's come across him, um, unfortunately he's no longer with us, a Dr. Robert Mendelssohn, and uh, he was considered a bit of a medical maverick, um, was a fully trained medical doctor, MD, had a big practice, American doctor, and uh, he referred to the medical establishment as more akin to a religion, not a science, and it's all based on belief. Uh, not science. And that is a very serious issue. But all right, let's move on to the second point here. Pharmaceuticals are inherently toxic. And a lot of folks are pretty much already familiar with that because the majority of modern pharmaceuticals are a petroleum-based product, are they not? Correct, yes. And uh, there's quite a story. We, well, we won't. Go, we do go into it in the book, but uh, we, we certainly won't have time to go in for it now to the for the history of... Um, how sort of uh, petroleum-based products became so prevalent in almost all of the pharmaceutical 
products. That'd be the Rockefeller takeover of the medical system. And we've done a show on that. Yeah, we don't want to rock any fellers out there. (laughs) Yes, you're absolutely right. There is evidence, um, as we also talk about, that um, the the, uh, establishment recognises that the waste products of the pharmaceutical industry contain some really, really toxic substances like benzene, toluene and cyanide. You know, that's listed in the establishment documents. So, you know, it's not just us saying, oh, you know, they're toxic, but they are really toxic. And when you've got pharmaceutical waste that's got those kind of products, you have to say, well, what is it that pharmaceuticals do? And that's something else that we, you know, we really looked at. Well, what's the purpose of medicines? What are they supposed to do? And what do they actually do in the body? So, you know, it's it's a lot of people do know that they're toxic, but they're not necessarily going to give them up because they think, oh, well, you know, they still do something. They still help me, even though I should be careful how much I take or something. But it, it's, it's a little bit deeper. Well, it's quite a bit deeper than that. Well, modern pharmaceuticals are the gift that keep on giving yes. for the industries because not only are they just made to target a specific thing, they don't cure very much very often anyway. So not only are they producing a product that is very likely to cause some sort of harm or other problems, they also have a customer for life and they're going to keep you on whatever the prescription is for a very, very long time, most likely. Let's actually address that for a second. Even with what the public has shown on television, the adult mind should be able to put together that if you're being told to bring up a conversation with your doctor, there's already a problem with this. A doctor is supposed to be the person who assesses what you may or may not need. But what's more is in almost every pharmaceutical product that you see advertised on television to get you to buy into wanting a drug for some reason, the side effects are often far worse than the thing that's being treated. I mean, can we talk about that for a second? Yes, one of the things is is calling them side effects. Um, that's a misnomer. I mean, they, they are direct effects. The only reason they're called side effects is because they're not the ones that the doctor is interested in. Um, but they're very much more than side effects. And yes, they, are, they can certainly be far worse than um, the original effects. But once you've got these other effects, they're, they're treated, uh, the symptoms that they produce are treated as another disease. And so, oh, well, you've now got this disease, so you've now got... Um, we've got to have some other drug um, that will control it. But can I go back to, um, I think, something that Jason said about targeting? There's very little evidence, if any at all, that any drug actually targets, solely targets what it's supposed to target um, because they act systemically. Almost all well, well, chemicals, um, they act systemically. They, they don't go to a specific target. And that's, and that's quite an important point because uh, certainly the advertising of uh, pharmaceutical products tr- uh, sort of hoodwinks the public into thinking that they can produce drugs that target, but, but they can't. They can't actually do it. I'm actually glad that you used that word because that word is so critically important. Recently, as I was doing research, I took apart the word pharmaceutical and I came to understand that it's directly related to an old Greek idea for the scapegoat and the hoodwink. I think people know the language we're talking about, but let me see if I got what we just covered straight. Are you telling me that if we take pharmaceuticals, which are actually petro-based chemicals, there's no heat-seeking missile? The body just ingests it like it's a chemical? It doesn't target my acne or whatever it's supposed to be doing? 
Let me uh, clarify my point, by the way. I didn't necessarily mean that it's going to do anything great, but most pharmaceuticals mask a problem. Sure, yes. that's correct. That's oh, correct. Yes, I, I'm just raising the point that many people think that the pharmaceuticals do only target the particular diseased part. But a diseased part that's looked at in a laboratory under a microscope is is not in the same environment that a, as, as it is in a you know a living holistic human body, which is you know everything's interconnected. And so taking the two and, and thinking that um, this chemical is going to act in exactly the same way in a human body, a living intact human body, as it does in a um, chemical. Um, in a laboratory chemistry experiment, then, you know, it, it just doesn't happen. So, no. well, Whatever you do to the body, any part of the body, will have an effect throughout the system. You know, the, the body is a self-regulating, self-healing organism. And as an organism, you will affect everything. Whatever you do will affect everything. You mean a holistic approach instead of an allopathic approach? So, <laughs> yes, a holistic approach. Absolutely. Should, should should we tell the podiatrist that our foot's actually connected to our body? <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. 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 If he's not really twigged that one, but the, but this is one of the main failings of the medical establishment. They treat the body as if it's some sort of machine, like you would with your car, and that it's some sort of mechanism where they can sort of tinker with one bit and it'll have no effect on the rest of it. Well, that's just not true. And as Dawn pointed out, you know, many of the tests and that that uh, are done by the pharmaceutical companies and produce certain results are all done in the laboratory in petri dishes you know uh, working on cell cultures and things like that which is a world away from working on a complete organism which is the human body and the and the other thing of course that they do is work on animals and uh, we do cover this in the book uh, with vivisection and basically uh, animal experiments. And this is not because uh, we're vegetarians or anything like that, although we are, but it's not because of that. It's because if we looked into it quite impartially into if there is any valid science in experiments on animals and then the results being transferred to humans uh, with, you know, if something they do something to a rat, and get a particular result, does that mean that that drug is going to work the same on a human being? And the evidence is there that that is absolutely not. You know, they just are not compatible. But as we found, uh, the way that the pharmaceutical companies like to use vivisection when it suits them is to just to get a result where they can say, yeah, we've done the clinical trials and this drug is safe and we can use it on human beings. And They'll have done that when they've got whatever it is they want to get as a test result from testing it on rabbits or rats. But I also know, because I've talked to some of these research chemists, that if they don't get the result that they want when they test it on the lab rats or whatever, then they'll just bury it. Um, <laughs> so it's they use it, they use the information when it suits them and they don't use it when it doesn't suit them. And uh, I've seen some quite shocking instances of that. I talked to one research chemist obviously no names mentioned, who admitted that, um, and this is a quite a high level, uh, admitted that certain search results that they were looking for to get the particular statistics that they wanted out of their computer system so they could pass a product. It was a lady in this case, so she couldn't get those results. And she spoke to one of her colleagues to say, look, I just can't get the results we're looking for here. 
And the answer to this was, well, if you use this other piece of software, you'll get a different set of statistics, which will probably give you the answer you want. And uh, <laughs> and that's exactly what she did. So they manipulate things, uh, even with computer systems, to get the results they want, that they can then put it to the FDA or whatever and say, this is all fully tested and safe to launch on the public. Uh, again, we go into this in great detail in the book, and uh, you can see that the whole the whole system is just uh, a fraud, really. So before I give it back to Jason to move us forward, um, I got this book. And from my point of view, and I don't say this very often, when we cover things like this, I'll say a title, I'll let people make up their own minds. But this book is such a great reference for any household. The first thing I did is I looked up things that I had concerns with, blood pressure. I wanted to know something about aspirin. And there it was. Not only was the information there, it's researched and cited. In other words, you can't argue that this is someone's point of view. There's actually cited research here. Again, the book is called What Really Makes You Ill and Why Everything You Thought You Knew About Disease is Wrong. The authors are David Parker and Don Lester, who we're speaking with. Sorry, I wanted to get that in so people understand why I feel this book is important. Jason, go ahead, pull us forward. Let's get the next point here, iatrogenesis. And the medical definition of that is inadvertent and preventable induction of disease or complications by the medical treatment or procedures of a physician or surgeon. And I'm sure you have a lot of interesting things to say about that. Yes, I mean, uh, there has been some reports, probably one of the most famous ones, uh, people may not have come across it, was done by uh, Barbara Starfield some years ago. And um, yes, hydrogenesis is, as some people have probably more crudely put it, it's uh, death by modern medicine. And um, there's one or two doctors that uh, use that phrase. And yes, that basically it's where uh, prescriptions, quite often prescription drugs prescribed by a physician and used and taken in the appropriate way as instructed by the physician, but then end up killing the patient. And this may sound like, oh, this is probably just something that happens very rarely. But as uh, Barbara Starfield showed in their report, and this is just in America alone, there's probably several hundred thousand people every year die of iatrogenesis, basically death by modern medicine, uh, which is horrendous, you would think, in one country alone. And of course, then you can extrapolate that across the world. And we've got to be looking at millions um, who die through the medical system. And this is not through malpractice, let me add. This is by people following the procedures given to them by the physician using the prescribed medicines in the prescribed way, but end up dying because of it. And this is what nitrogenesis well, is. Let's make a point here. Um, back in the days of the Brady Bunch, it was still commonly accepted, and that's doctors used to make house calls, that a doctor was in fact practicing medicine. But that's kind of a thing to consider in the modern age, isn't it? Considering that most doctors are now under the aegises of their insurance and their superiors and their board of directors about what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do to include uh, being coerced into certain medicines or procedures based on what I'll just call the medical market is pushing. In other words, are doctors in the United States, since I live here, really practicing medicine or are they being directed? Is it is it a better way to describe it as most doctors are directed to do what they do today? Yes, is the, is the answer. Um, 
the the training and, and again we may get to talk about this a little later the training of the doctors is uh, basically pharmaceutically based uh, it, it's <laughs> you know they they have the books i can't remember what the, there's a particular book they have their uh, dictionary which uh, you know you basically lists certain symptoms you know you, anyone could do it they could look it up oh well there's this symptom this symptom and this symptom therefore this was what you must have therefore this is the drug i'm going to give you you know you could uh, it, it's just just like a dictionary you could look it up yourself and prescribe it yourself um which is not to my mind practicing proper medicine in any way at all but uh, this is this is what happens and um this is borne out in the training of the doctors um and it's like anyone else they can only do what they're taught when they go through medical training they're trained in a particular way and as we found many of the uh training schools and colleges are either funded partially or wholly by the pharmaceutical companies so their libraries and the curriculum is pretty much governed by the pharmaceutical companies who obviously have vested interests um in pushing their drugs and uh, you know we may be if we wanted to be a little uncharitable uh, sort of <laughs> refer to many doctors as little more than drug pushers um because that's really, really what they do let me jump in there too it's you know i think what you said is is honest but even the patient themselves have been turned into a drug pusher by watching their television that informs them they should take the name of this drug they just saw an ad for and bring up a conversation with their doctor, which is the height of ridiculousness. Um, because you saw an ad on television, there's a drug that all of a sudden you need. I'm just pointing out. Yeah. I think the system's slightly different in America than in the UK, um, but sort of slightly encroaching on, on the next bullet point that um, you have to say that if the medical system worked and if all these medicines really did make people better, then Americans should actually be the healthiest people on the entire planet because they do take probably some of the largest numbers of um uh, these products, pharmaceuticals, um, but unfortunately, the evidence shows that they're they're far from the healthiest. Um, and in fact, you know, there are various uh, studies that show that Americans are some of the least healthy of of so-called kind of Western countries. Um, but I, I think just just looking at how Americans are not the healthiest people, you have to say, well, why not? If they're taking so many medicines, because I think at least half. Half Americans are taking at least one, um, but many of them are uh, taking uh, multiples, you know, three, four, five, ten, I don't know, uh, huge numbers of, of different so-called medicines because they're prescribed or they're, or as you say, they, they see them um, on television ads uh, and then they say, oh, we want this particular. Yeah, I, I mean, you're quite right. It, it quite often is patient driven. I mean, we, we get this in the UK as well, where even though doctors officially are trying to cut back on the prescription of antibiotics, let's say, um, because again, and this is not something we agree with, we can talk about antibiotics later, but they'll say, you know, if people take antibiotics too often, then the drug, the uh, germs uh, build up resistance to it and then antibiotics, antibiotics no longer work. Well, there's a, quite a different reason for all of that, which we'll explain. But Quite often, even though doctors are saying that's the reason they don't want to prescribe antibiotics too often, um, patients will demand them 
they'll say, no, you know, I, I feel that I need antibiotics for this. And uh, the doctor will give in and uh, prescribe the antibiotics. So, yeah, the, the patients are um, quite often their own worst enemy because, again, like the majority of people, they've been brainwashed into thinking that whatever ailment they have, there is a drug that they can take which will make it right. And what they don't realise is there is no drug, and I say this again, there is no drug that will cure any particular ailment. It may mask it, but it will not cure it. There is not one pharmaceutical product that will cure any illness. Well, when we had Dr. Andy Kaufman on, uh, we went at uh, two episodes. We had him on back to back because what he was saying was so important. And we pointed out that if you have a terrible infection, you take that antibiotic, chances are it's going to knock it out. But it also knocks out everything in your body that can be knocked out, um, all the beneficial things. And we talked about that. And he even started to get into how the healing will occur based on having taken that. But we need to keep moving to get as much as we can in hour one. And Jason, I know we've covered it, but I'm really looking at going at number five here again. Yes, the germ theory is unproven. And of course, we went over that with Dr. Kaufman. But all right, let's hear what your take on it, folks. Okay. Um, well, without wanting to sort of bore people, if they've heard a lot of this before, um, just a, they need a brief... to hear it. They need to hear <laughs> a lot of it. Okay. Brief history is um, most of it is attributed to uh, Louis Pasteur. So we're looking at about 150 years ago. Um, most people may not realise that Louis Pasteur was a chemist. So there's a bit of a clue there as to where we are with things today. But um, he's sort of credited with the sort of generation of the germ theory. In actual fact, it does go back a bit further than that. But uh, obviously, uh, it was seized upon that at the time, they could only see bacteria through there. They only had optical microscopes, and the only things they could see were bacteria, although tiny, but that's what they could see. And so they were starting to blame uh, bacteria for quite a number of illnesses. And as we explain in the book, uh, again, giving a short, uh, a short explanation here, what we found is that what they were looking at, so if they, through their microscope, looked at some uh, diseased tissue or some dying cells, they would see clusters of bacteria around those cells. And they then made the big mistake of blaming the bacteria for the cause of the dying cells. What they didn't realise at the time is that bacteria in the body in that way are actually a cleanup mechanism. They're actually, that's their job. It's the same sort of thing that you see as you walk in forests and things, you'll see decaying trees or uh, uh, being taken over by fungi, which is another thing that can happen in the body. And this is their job. They are cleanup agents. Without them, human life, any life, would cease to exist if you didn't have that cleanup mechanism. But that was the root of it. They mistakenly thought that they were the cause. And we often say to people, it, that would be just akin to uh, just because whenever you see a house fire, you see firemen clustered around it, around it. so uh, you blame the firemen for causing the fire rather than the ones who are trying to help and put it out. And so that's how bacteria got a bad name. But to look at the actual science, again, there is no proof that any particular bacteria causes any particular disease. Yes, you'll find them at the sites of disease, but they're there for a very good reason. Okay, um, so... It, in later years, in around about the 1930s, when the uh, electron microscope was sort of invented, 
they were able to see much smaller particles then uh, because they realized that they couldn't blame bacteria for every type of disease that they'd come across. But now they could see something else. They could see even tinier particles than bacteria in the blood. Uh, so they started to blame these particles for it, uh, which got the name of virus. Again, we, we explain where that comes from, the name, uh, what its original meaning was. But anyway, they started to blame these other particles for it. Um, even though, uh, as we know, uh, viruses, the things that they call viruses, are just actual tiny particles of protein. They're not alive. They are not organi living organisms. There are certain things, even, even within scientific terms, there are certain things that determine whether something is alive. And that is that they have to be able to eat and excrete and reproduce and have a certain minimum DNA. Well, these things that are called viruses don't have any of those things. So they're basically not alive. They're completely inert. And yet the medical establishment blamed them for almost everything. And again, this will ring true with people, again, with the stuff that's going off in the world today. So wait a minute here, David. I'm sorry to interrupt, but every evening on the news, they show me a picture of a coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Kaufman was uh, generous enough with his well-researched information to inform us that that was an artist's rendering of a thing that has no existence in reality. From your point of view, what the hell is that thing they're showing us every night on the evening news exactly. called the coronavirus? What is that? Exactly. exactly. The CGI images. The CGI images, because one of the things, which of course they never tell you, is any any of these images through an electron microscope will be flat and only black and white and certainly not moving. And yet we get these wonderful things in almost 3D, full colour, and uh, we get lots of different pictures, of course, of the same virus, which is a bit of an anomaly. Um, but yeah, they're pure CGI. And I would challenge any of them to say, no, these are genuine pictures of a virus. They are absolutely not. And uh, it's just a con trick, really, to because people don't question it and they think they're actually seeing a virus. You know, this is it. You know, this is so, this is the thing. Not true. So, so let me jump in here to make a, a self-serving point, but it's not really self-serving because it serves us all to understand that we just had two professionals back to back. The first one, an MD and a psychologist trained about as much as a medical person can be trained in the United States who came and said the exact same thing about viruses. So for all the people, yeah, for all the people who want to be afraid of a thing right now, you're going to have to look for something else because what we've told you is verifiable. It's well cited. And by the way, if you get the book, you'll, you'll find out that these authors basically have also cited all their work so that it can be verified. Can I say this? Uh, another scientist uh, and as a biologist, uh, Dr. Lynn Margulis, who, who died a number of years ago, um, she states quite clearly that viruses are no more germs and enemies than our bacteria or human cells. So, you know, that's a biologist saying it um, very, very clearly. So, you know, these are these are not isolated cases. It's not just an odd doctor here and there. You know, the more we looked, the more we found that people are saying, that, you know, there are some who have written and, and explained that, you know, that, that there's no proof that they are, that they cause disease. You know, they're not the enemy. This would be a good place for people to pause momentarily and bring up a search engine and look up the word hoodwink, by the way. But anyhow, Jason, over to you. <laughs> Hoodwink indeed. Hoodwink indeed. 
So we've gone through quite a few of these. Did you want to address anything else with viruses since these kind of go together? On the germ theory, again, um, people say, oh, well, you know, where's the evidence? Oh, they've been saying that it's it's been proven. There were, um, it's not just a recent thing that people have been saying, oh, no, it's not, it's not proven. There were people who were not exactly contemporaries of uh, Pasteur exactly, but in the early 20th century, you know, we, we cite um, doctors who say, literally that you know there, there's no evidence there is you know and they say that they're quite prepared to state that there is no scientifically established evidence um to prove that any microorganism causes any disease so that was the case you know in, in 1911 and 1928 two particular um quotes we've got that um if the evidence wasn't there then then nothing's changed to make it now you know to make it so it's, it's just it never was there let me just, uh, we, we say this in the book for anyone who'd like to write this down or challenge the medical establishment, which we have. Uh, and we say in the book, if anyone is claiming that a particular virus is the cause of the disease, then ask them for the proof. And I would recommend to, for them to ask these three questions. Is there an electron micrograph of the pure and fully characterized virus? What is the name of the primary specialist peer-reviewed paper in which the virus is illustrated and its full genetic information described? And what is the name of the primary publication that provides proof that a particular virus is the sole cause of a particular disease? Now, we've put this in our book and, and our first little book that we did and challenged anyone, doctors, anyone they like, to answer those questions and prove us wrong. And uh, no one ever has. So I would recommend that people bear those three little questions in mind and ask them of anyone, any doctor, any anyone at all who is trying to propose that we have a viral infection on our hands and ask those three questions. And if they can't provide the answers to those three questions, then you have your answer. <laughs> so, Jason, are you noticing the commonality between Dr. Andrew Kaufman and uh, our current guests with the fact that research should be reproducible? They've verbatim went back to the same root areas like uh, Pasteur. Uh, and one of, the, one of the guests took the time to show that Pasteur was actually plagiarizing other people. They both went to the micrographs. They both said the exact same thing about viruses. I'm just pointing out that uh, research should be reproducible. And we're showing you right here that the last two guests are so well-researched and they're telling you basically verbatim the same sources where it started and what we know now. Why don't you go ahead and carry us? I guess we're, we're on the last point for hour one, but we'll carry it forward. Well, there's one last thing I'd like to address about viruses that I know is going to uh, probably crop up in some folks' mind. If you do a search for a picture of a virus, the only thing you can find that's supposed to be real pictures are indeed these black and white images. And they don't really look very much like all of the other pretty pictures that, as we said, are CGI, what's pushed out there and said this is a virus. So what have you come across, in, in your opinion, what do you think a virus really is? Basically, uh, they're just little bits of protein. And no one, and I repeat, no one actually knows what they do in reality. They're, they're just in the blood and they don't do anything, basically. So it could actually be cell debris. Uh, they are certainly not pathogens. 
And that's really the main point of all this. They're not pathogens, so they don't cause disease. Yes, they exist, but they're tiny, as much as anyone can say, tiny bits of protein. I want to get this last point in. Um, we're gonna we're gonna be wrapping up hour one in a minute. Please give us the definition. Uh, we always say uh, in the work, Jason and I do that words have meaning. Can you tell us the roots of the word virus, what it means, and just cover the word a little bit real quickly again? Yeah, the, the word virus comes from the Latin, or comes from Latin, um, and it means poison or noxious substance. And we show quite clearly in the book that some of the older writings before the end of the 19th century, when they used the word virus, they were using it in that context. Um, we, we might go into a bit more detail as to what that word was applied to um, a, a bit later, because what they were describing was certainly noxious substances that, that's nothing to do with a particular particle. Okay, so um, before we take on the German court case, and I'll let Jason add what he will and lead us in, um, in hour two, there's going to be some things that we bring up that people are going to have an interest in. HIV, AIDS, the immune system, bacteria, uh, the plague, the black death, malaria, these are all big ideas. But Jason, let's try to maximize out the tail end of what we've got for hour one here with whatever you'll add. So we're going to talk about Stephen Lanka next, and he is a German biologist who's accused of having pseudoscientific outbursts. But let's hear what you've got to say about this gentleman. Well, I, I think um, I think to to prove and vindicate uh, Dr. Stephen Lanka, uh, bearing in mind he was a, a trained virologist, whatever anyone may think, he 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 took uh, he took the case to court and challenged the medical establishment to actually prove that there was a virus that caused measles, okay? And they were unable to do so, in short. Uh, they had a couple of goes at it, um, but they were unable to prove by bringing all the scientific papers that they said did prove it, but in a German court, that evidence was seen to not prove that a virus caused measles. Now, you would have thought that that would have made world headlines, wouldn't you? all around the world, even if that was the only virus <laughs> that they'd found not to cause a disease. Um, but no, it was uh, it was the mainstream was sort of uh, uh, silent about it. And it makes you wonder why. Well, we know why, because it's a, it's a controlled medium uh, by the same, same people making all the money. And Dr. Lanker is the one who, again, publicly has said he's not found any virus to be the cause of any disease, but he was able to prove in court, even though they threw their best people at it, the pharmaceutical companies that is, um, they couldn't prove it in a German court, you know, so this is not some sort of kangaroo court in the backwoods, this is a German court of law, and they could not prove that a virus caused measles, which of course begs the question then, is what are vaccinations for measles about? And I guess we're going to be talking about vaccinations uh, in hour two. But I think that one thing vindicates everything we've been saying. One is that one of the things that um, parents are uh, sort of uh, very fearful of, their children getting uh, measles, and the uh, media and the medical system are trying to frighten them into getting their child's vaccinated. And yet they know very well that it has been proven in a German court that there is no virus that causes measles. In which case, it begs the question, what is the vaccination for? 
Well, our last guest, actually, you know, we were talking about things like uh, thimerosal and the mercury that people have found. But the last guest we had on, the medical doctor, informed us that there's particulate forms of aluminum in all of it. But anyone with a common sense mind, we just talked about Stefan Lanka, Dr. Stephen Lanka, and the German court cases. Jason grabbed Wikipedia real quick to find out that Wikipedia wanted you to know the thing to know about him is he had outbursts which also tells you the extent to what we're going to do. But but let's take this common logic in the last couple of minutes we have here. We're told that children must be vaccinated to go to school. And if your child's not vaccinated, you're somehow a threat. Well, logically, that doesn't work out. If every other person in a room is vaccinated and a non-vaccinated person walks in, by their logic, the only person who is a danger to anyone would be the non-vaccinated person. But what they're trying to convince you is the non-vaccinated person is somehow a threat to the vaccinated people, which tells you flat out that if they were vaccinated, they should be immune, but they're not by their own logic. Um, and that sets aside transmission of disease, contagion, which Dr. Andy Kaufman covered, and the fact that viruses do not exist as described. Well, looking at what, let's just focus on measles for a moment, Supposedly it is a virus, the rubiola virus, and I'm assuming that's what they inoculate against. But again, where's the proof of evidence for that? Because here I am pulling up images and I see pretty CGI pictures once more. Yes, uh, you will. You, you will see all sorts of pictures and misinformation around viruses and vaccinations. I mean, this is this is a big topic in itself, and uh, uh, we, we undoubtedly will be talking more about it uh, later in, in the show. But again, we can say, as we've already said, there is no proof that any viruses cause a disease, and it's been proved that measles is not caused by a virus in court. And we know that within um, a vaccine, um, the ingredients of a vaccine are very toxic. And, you know, we can see lots of evidence, we'll talk about it later, of um, vaccine damage. You know, this is a big topic. And, and it's, I've always found it very interesting that within a doctor's surgery, certainly this is true in the UK, I assume it's true in America, that with the syringe that the doctor will have in his hand about to inject into either your arm or your child's arm, if you were to drop that syringe on the floor, and it broke, then the substance that was in the syringe then has to be treated as toxic waste in the cleanup exercise. Now, that makes you wonder, well, if that has to be treated as toxic waste, what business does it have in your child's bloodstream or your own? And I think people will see there's a, a big question around that. That's a critical point because so many are pointing out that with this virus fear nonsense sweeping the world, that almost certainly there will be inoculations and many people are afraid that where they live, uh, there's going to be some illegal, what I call an illegal law passed, trying to force everyone to inoculate. And based on the things we've just laid down, I'll tell a little tale about when I was getting out of the Marine Corps, when I was in Japan, we were all told that we were all going to get a three-series inoculation, three separate inoculations, because there was this magically dangerous thing called swine encephalitis that people were catching from pigs and it was going to kill us all. I was about two months from separating from the Marine Corps and I said, I will not take it. 
they pulled the whole battalion into the theater to start sticking needles in people. I was pulled in front of the base commander who threatened to court-martial me, at which point I said, court-martial away. I'm out of the Marine Corps in two months, and I will not be taking any of the Series 3 shots, at which point I was threatened multiple times with a court-martial. I'll suffice it to say that I was not court-martialed, nor was I forced to take against my will an inoculation that I knew I wanted nothing to do with. And we're all going to be in a similar situation, and adults will have to make up their own minds. But, all right, so let me reiterate. Our guests today are Don Lester and David Parker. They wrote a book which, if I had my way, I'd snap my fingers and every household would have it as a reference book, if nothing else, where when they were thinking about medical things in the life of a modern human, they could pick up that book and look up that particular item. It's nearly an 800-page book, so I'm not kidding you. It is a thorough reference book, and they could look up anything, drugs, aspirins, this illness, that illness, all kinds of things that are well-cited and well-researched. The name of that book is... What really makes you ill and why everything you thought you knew about disease is wrong. Don and David, we need to wrap up so we can get hour one out within the one hour time limit on other radio shows. But do you have contact or places where people can reach out to you? Yes, sure. I mean, the the book obviously is available on uh, Amazon, wherever you are, Amazon.com, Amazon.co.uk, any Amazon site. Uh, we do have a website recently put up. Uh, which is uh, www.whatreallymakesyouill.com. Um, so you can you can actually get in touch. There is an email address on there. Uh, but I do stress to people, we don't want to, people to treat it as a doctor's surgery and for them to be writing to us about every illness. Um, you know, that's why we wrote the book, so that people, as you very kindly said, they can look at it and pretty much draw their own conclusions about pretty much anything from the book without... Uh, corresponding with us but if they have some something that they feel they need to talk to us about they can get it in touch with us on that website all right so there it is don lester david parker that's the first hour of episode 205 i hope you will all join us over in the free speech zone where i serve i do not use a media server i serve from my own private server, everything in hour two, so that freedom of speech will never be impeded on. We're going to cover all kinds of things, the immune system, HIV AIDS, which Dr. Andy Kaufman just told us the truth about, autoimmune disease. We're going to talk about inoculations. How about the Black Death? Now, there's one for you. After everything we've laid down, you've got to be thinking about, wait a minute, they told me a third of the world died during the Black Death and these other things. And also, uh, the vaccination idea. That's probably going to be a big deal in the coming future. Anyhow, join us over at crow777radio.com. C-R-R-O-W 777radio.com. By the way, the fraud Crow 777 website is up again, and he has defrauded people out of donations by ripping off content, and we're told he's doing data collection and other nefarious things. The only true Crow 777 site is crow777radio.com. Join us in the free speech zone. There it is. Cheers.